Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Tim Pierce, a cosmetic physician from Manchester in the UK. Tim is the founder of Skin Viva, one of the UK's top aesthetic clinics, where he also runs Skin Viva Training, a training facility for injectables. Tim's mission is to help ethical clinicians master medical aesthetics. He focuses on teaching injectors the core principles of running an injectable business, including anatomy, psychology, technique, and complications. We spoke to Tim during the UK lockdown period to discuss his philosophy and approach to training in cosmetic injectables. Hello, everyone. We've got Dr. Tim Pearson, who is uh, one of our one of our favourites, because also a podcaster himself. How are you, Tim? I'm very well, thanks. I'm very pleased to be with you, Jake. This is take ninety nine. We tried this <laughs> day, and Zoom had a bit of a meltdown. So apologies for that, and thanks for coming back. Um, take two. What's been happening? Yeah, yeah. Well, more than take two is like take hundred and two. <laughs> um, what have you been doing in lockdown, Tim? Because obviously you guys are still not injecting as far as I know. And you're probably asking similar questions that our clinics are. Well, when's the right time and, you know, what's been happening? Yeah, so um, I really didn't enjoy the the move into lockdown because it's it's different. Uh, we were given such vague advice. I think some countries have been a lot better. So it's that whole thing of making a judgment. And, and while everyone are making their own unique judgments, everyone's also tearing each other apart for being too slow or too fast. Um, so uh, I kind of saw that coming as we return and I made a decision that no matter what, I'm not going to be first to open. <laughs> I just thought I'm going to take the, because uh, I don't want to be the one making, you know, leading the way with something that's controversial and has a, particularly in my position as a doctor, like you can't, you, you can't be a trailblazer. At least my position is you shouldn't be a trailblazer in risk-taking. Um, so, so we, uh, that was, Instead of trying to process all the government documents, I just decided I'm not going to be first. And that's kind of at least given me some peace. Some places are open in the UK because the the British Association of Cosmetic Doctors, I think they might be called that, um, they have, they've basically got a barrister to say, it's fine, you can open if you're a doctor because you're providing healthcare advice. But the two other big organizations, Safe Face and um, the JCCP have both said don't open until the 4th of July. So that's already split the industry because many of the doctors are opening um, and many still, probably the majority are still not opening, but it's, uh, I'm not opening for that reason. Also, we've got a lot of staff and unfurloughing people and getting it wrong is a big risk. I don't want to go through all that process. So we're going to wait a bit longer. Yeah, we've had a very similar situation here. Yeah. Um, well, like my, well, my, well, my clinic's technically a classified as a beauty clinic so we've uh, some states are able to open i've got some clinics that are open just for injectables um so we're only really offering half of our services so no laser treatments no skin treatments we can sell products and do injectables and then other states you can't um so it's all a little bit of a, a bit of a mishmash and then we've got that infighting here as well there's been letters from various bodies and organizations um all giving their opinion on why they should open and why others can't and who should and who shouldn't. It's It's been quite a, a bit of a mess here as well, which has divided a lot of people. Yeah, it's very divisive. And um, 
despite occasionally being in social media controversy myself, I uh, I really don't enjoy it. So um, uh, I'm, I'd, I'd rather just wait. <laughs> Sounds sensible. So what have you been doing with yourself when you've been locked up at home? So uh, what's it been like? It's been it's been a real roller coaster from. I'm not going to let this defeat us to this is the reality of actually having your kids at home and trying to work, which I know you've had as well. Like it's really, <laughs> it's really hard. Um, and, um, and then trying to become, trying to be flexible, like trying to roll with it a bit, um, not get too miserable about it and look for the opportunities. So um, we've done a lot of content. We've kept our YouTube show going um, through the sh- shooting where we are now in the shed uh, instead of in the clinic. Um and that, that's been okay. It was very emotional shutting the clinic down. Um, I must say that was a really low day, actually, once we made the decision going in and telling all the staff. And, you know, a lot of our staff, you know, they, they want to keep going for, for, for the team, for each other. Um, and that, that was, it was certainly a week after we shut down that I was kind of in this confused state of what does this mean? And well, my, cause they didn't, there was no plan either with the, um, with the government in terms of furloughing staff. So I just thought we'd shut down our staff and that we're not paying anyone's, anyone's, um, well, we would have kept paying, but we, we knew we, you can't do that forever. There's yeah. going to be a few weeks and then you're going to have to get rid of your whole business. So that's why I thought I was in right at the beginning, which is really painful. Mm. Um, but thankfully they've helped quite a lot. So, um, that's not the position we're in. And what's the, um, situation there with staff? I mean, here in Australia, we've been, I'm lucky enough to have, an initiative called Job Keeper, which basically um, allows us as employees or businesses to continue to employ our staff. We're basically sort of like maternity leave. The government is paying us a fixed amount of money every week to then on pay to our staff. Have you got something similar in the in the UK? I mean, excuse the ignorance for me. I'm finding hard hard enough to follow what we're doing here in Australia, let alone what's going on um, yeah. in the rest of the world. It seems to be changing by the hour. <laughs> Yeah, it's this idea, uh, um, this word that I'd never heard before, furloughing. Um, so we furloughed, and what that means, what they basically do is is pay through the PA, the pays you earn system, through the tax system. They are paying our staff eighty percent of their normal wage. Right, eighty um, percent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, which is pretty good because most of us are saving a lot more than twenty percent by being in lockdown, and we've certainly saved a fortune in childcare. Um, so uh, I think most people are, are okay with that. Their standard of living hasn't dropped significantly. There are probably some who are more affected than others. And that's only up to a limit of 2500 per month. So some of our, our managers, uh, we're topping up their salary um, so that they're also matching the, the rest of the staff. Mm-hmm. But it, it's enough to keep us going. Also, they you know delaying mortgages helps. Yes. Um, uh, Allegan have been helpful. They've supported us with some of our um, our stock payments, giving us a bit of a, a bit of a gap. Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens sort of three three to six months from now when people are back at work, things are returning to some kind of normality, the free money from the government stop and we've got to start paying our bills again and that pent-up uh, demand for treatments has sort of, sort of flattened out a little bit. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens from there. That's sort of where I'm looking at as to what's going to um, – give us an indication of perhaps what the future holds. Yeah, we're, we're anticipating. In fact, we before we were delayed again, we were fully booked for the month we returned. And then we've had to move all those patients again. And, and I expect to have a really busy couple of months and then, and then for people to be affected. Um, now, uh, there's also going to be this element of excitement, like we're returning back to normal, which I don't know if that's really going to happen or not because it's going to be so gradual. But if 
there might be a surge of, of optimism that then drives a lot of activity. But then people, as you say, the reality will bite. Tax, I mean, we've already heard that taxes are going to go up, obviously. You can't get all this for free. Um, and this is going to start to, um, will affect consumer confidence. I just don't know how much in our industry. We started our business in a recession. And, and it, you know, so we've been through this before. And it, it is one of those industries that is more recession-proof than average um, than Just buying economy. cars, for example. Yeah, yeah exactly. what, do they, what do they say? Confidence takes the elevator down and the steps up. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> heard that one, but... Yeah, one. well, basically, talking about consumer confidence. So when you've got high levels of consumer confidence, people are out there, they're happy to spend, they're happy to take risks, all these sorts of things, but it takes time Um period of time for people in the marketplace to have confidence in it to go out and take those risks so that takes a long time to build but it only takes like a disaster something like this to happen to make that confidence drop through the floor and then people are scared to spend and then then that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy because if no one's spending then no one's got income it's sort of like it all interlinks together so it's just a saying that it can be destroyed in a second but it takes a long time to rebuild yeah the the thing we've got which occasionally i say to patients in consultation when they're is that the problem, the question remains about your faith. It doesn't matter about your money. Like the question remains. So if you've been asking yourself the question for 10 years or for 20 years, whether you should have your nose straightened or not, like that question does not go away just because you have a lack of a bit of confidence. Um, so it's it's like, do you want to answer the question or not? And that's what we're dealing with in our industry is this persistent daily confrontation with the issue, which isn't the same with a car. Like I think you, if you don't buy a car, you can snap out of thinking about buying a new car and wait a year sometimes. Um, whereas with with facial aesthetics in particular, it's a um, there is something that'll be resilient about it because it's so persistent for people uh, from a purely business perspective. Tim, have you been inundated with not just people wanting to book in, but almost desperate people sort of saying, I have got to see you? Because I've noticed that here. And, you know, at the start, I was a bit like, oh, come on, this is silly. It's only been four weeks, five weeks, and then six weeks. And then I thought, you know what? It's actually really nice. I feel valued. Uh, and it kind of proves the point that you've spoken about many times that we're making people happy. It's not about lines and wrinkles. I mean, superficially it is. But we're treating people to make them feel better about themselves. So when you're, you know, locked up, you're worried, you're anxious, etc. what better thing to do than do something nice for yourself where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm more comfortable with, with who I am or what I see in the mirror. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny. I've, I've been thinking about that on a in a different way recently, which is um, I don't know if you've heard this idea of you, you, there's your ego and then there's there's also your essence, um, and your essence is that's who you really are when you're unfiltered, um, and it's it's who I think thinking about this idea. It's it's what people are really trying to get to a lot of the time is like I want to project myself without worrying about you know, something not being right, uh, just the real me projecting out into the world. And if you think about how valuable that is, if you can reach that point, that's what I see, particularly with non-surgical rhinoplasty, you see people suddenly connect with who they felt like they could always be and they open up and they smile differently. The before and after pictures always show a different demeanor. Like that that's what people are paying for. It's the most valuable thing that there is. I, I don't know if you can... I don't know if you can compare it to that many other things. It's not like buying a mobile phone where you can now got a bit more ability to do work. It's actually projecting yourself more. So um, absolutely, P people will be desperate to get back to that. Yeah, I often reflect on my days in hospital where, you know, I could save someone's life removing their rotting appendix and they go, thanks, doc. 
but I, then I can do a completely non-essential, non-surgical nose job and they're crying. It, yeah. you, it's, it's really hard to sort of explain that feeling until you've had that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really hard. You, you never get it if you, unless you explore your patient properly in the consultation. You think that you are doing lines and wrinkles. If you get their story out and then you hear the difference, that's where all the meaning in this job comes from. That's the only reason I could stay in it. If I was just straightening noses and not, not seeing the impact, it would, it would be boring to me. Yeah, you'd be a performing monkey with a needle. Yeah. <laughs> so look the slant of today's podcast with you um it's really to do with training because you're a, you're a training expert you own your own training school you've been doing this for years um i guess the first question that we always well i always get asked i get instagram this a hundred times a week is how do i get into injectables i, mean, I don't mean me but maybe a nurse or a doctor who's never done it before i mean what are the motivations for the people doing it who come to skin viva that's the name of your training school why do they come uh well that's a good question there's always um there's always multiple answers to that and i actually think a lot of the people don't even they're not actually consciously aware of their real motivations um because uh, when i look back um for me it was there was a pain point which is uh, you you probably remember from the uk there's the different banding system and i didn't know what banding i was going to get and suddenly i bought a house on one mortgage on on one band and then i suddenly had to pay uh, I suddenly lost like a third of my salary. And I was like, what am I going to do? So that got me open to the idea of looking for other things to do. Um, I had a friend who was doing aesthetics. She told me the profit margins and I was in. So I, I went in for non-glamorous, non-altruistic uh, reasons, uh, which I probably wouldn't have told anyone, you know, <laughs> up until now, um, uh, because it's, you know, no one wants to hear that story realistically, but that's the truth. Most people are seeing an opportunity, but there's a, there was an extra element that was exciting me, which I think is, is behind a lot of injectors, which is, which isn't actually about the money. It's about your ability to, to grow something of your own and actually project yourself more on the front foot through, through a business. You know, if you, you just need to look at most good injectors, Instagram feeds, and they are projecting themselves through their business in a way you can't really do in the public healthcare system. It's a, it's almost a version of self-expression. It's an area that you have a bit of control over. Um, it's positive, it's creative. Um, all of those things were in the background, uh, but the trigger was a financial one. But the, but, but the reason I stayed in it, because money doesn't keep you going forever, and there are actually probably easier ways to earn money, but it's that create, the ability to be creative uh, was a really big drive for me. And I think I see that in a lot of, a lot of the injectors as they're creative people um, open to new things. That's a really interesting um, point, Tim, because uh, we've spoken to obviously many injectors um, since we started the podcast. And one of the resound, like so common themes is people's passion for what they do. Um, it's not just about the money. I mean, the money is obviously a nice byproduct, but um, obviously as the industry becomes increasingly more competitive, um, what tends to separate the average injectors from the great injectors is the experience they give their patients, which you just can't fake unless you're passionate about what you're doing. At what point did it become passion for you? Because it initially started for money, as you said, but when did you sort of hit that point where it became something that was you know, a, a passion of yours? Um, I, I actually think it it was coincided with my GP training, and I suddenly realised that a lot of the stuff you get taught as a GP is a, is a pain. Like when you first hear you, if you see someone with a sore throat, you want to open their mouth, see if there's 
pus on their tonsils. And if there is, give them antibiotics and send them out. And GP training says you need to find out why they're really there because they're not just there because of the pus on their tonsils. They're therefore they've got hopes and fears and a backstory and an aunt with an opinion on this. And I never wanted to find that stuff out because I knew how to treat a sort a sort of strep throat. Um, but discovering that through aesthetics, that when you actually ask someone the real reasons why they're there, and then you get to solve a really significant problem with them in a really short space of time, it's incredibly rewarding. So it is literally that. So, I mean, I've got so many stories I could share with you, but um, it's it's that that ability to put someone back on the front foot instantly is really addictive, and you can only and it's almost like connection with someone else's psychology and their suffering and their real their real life story, but being the catalyst to put it back together um, is endlessly rewarding. And each patient is so different that you, you never get bored of that. If you, if you are interested in pulling their story out, you will always get a unique story. And everyone, the people are so fascinating. They're just so, and you, everyone is so different if you bother to look. Um, that, that, that was the bit that made me think, um, is meaning in doing this? And then the next bit is that I am artistic and I like, I like the, the mechanics of it. I like making beauty. So, it's the combination of, I was trying to think about all the different, when we talk about, we'll probably talk about my training program that we're starting, but it, it is about these, all these different aspects that you need to be as a great injector. You kind of are a psychologist, you're an artist, you're a teacher, um, you're, um, you're a doctor, you know, you're, all, all of these things are all woven together. And it's that, that it's endlessly, there's endless stuff to learn and to think about, which is why I don't get bored of it. And it's so rewarding when you get it right, that it's addictive, basically. I remember, I don't know if you said it on your podcast or one of your um, YouTube videos, when you first started, you said you weren't comfortable with it, sort of the transaction of money and a, like a service. It was, it was new for you um, coming from the NHS, and I remember the same, actually. But can you just describe how you sort of got over that and realized, actually, no, this is just different? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think you you get um, we're really interested in money mindset because basically the, my wife and I both come from a very public sector background. You know, my dad worked for NHS. Her her parents are academics and teachers, and there's no entrepreneurship in our family. So this this idea that you could basically make profit like profit's a dirty word essentially in our family. And so as soon as you start your business, you start to get confronted with a lot of this unconscious stuff in your mind that you're unaware of until you notice how it feels when someone puts cash on the bed after treatment or when you ask for money and it's, it is uncomfortable. Um, the, the way out of it for me, it's related to this whole, this whole thing we've been talking about, which is you've got to be in touch with the value that you're adding. I mean, really in touch with it because if I'm just taking money and I don't see that the value that it's creating, then I, I do feel there might, there's a chance there's an unequal exchange going on. But when you get in touch with what you're actually providing um, and you feel it, that tends to go away. Uh, and it's essential it's essential that you notice the impact that you're having on your patients otherwise you can feel this discomfort for a long time when you think about the profound effect that these treatments have on people and what you were saying before about when you do this for someone you're seeing them seeing how they respond to it I, I can only assume I haven't done the treatments I'm not a doctor not a medical professional but it seems to me like it's almost like giving someone a gift that they really want, not like a pair of socks. I mean, like a gift <laughs> that they really, really love and seeing that seeing that joy of giving to someone um, and the way that it makes them feel. I wonder if at some point we'll start defining these treatments as not want but need-based, if it's made, playing such a big part in people's mental health and the way they feel about themselves and the way that they project themselves when they go out into the world. Arguably, this it's not really a want, it's a need. 
perhaps. Yeah, well, this is the heart of the philosophical debate around what we do is, um, you know, is this superficial and meaningless, which is often how it's described, or is it profoundly important and meaningful? Um, actually, my, my parents were a bit uncomfortable when I first started with this whole aesthetics because they had those ideas in their head. And then once my dad, who's a psychologist, rang me up and said he just found some research about um, objective happiness scores over over time. And yeah, I don't know if you've heard this, it's quite interesting that if a, if you win the lottery, about a year later, your objective happiness scores are the same as they were before you won the lottery. And but also that's true with spinal injuries. So if you if you if you injure your spine and you lose your ability to walk, you also return to baseline. Um, but the interesting thing was he found that um this one bit of research, and I don't know, I don't have the original source, but that um uh, non-surgical, not non-surgical, but uh, plastic surgery it was in this case, if th those differences are persistent. So if you actually correct a nose that you've always hated, you're actually happier objectively a year on than you were before you had the procedure, unlike winning the lottery. And most people would think winning the lottery would make you happier than having a straighter nose. Um, but it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, but I think it's it's something to do with this whole idea of being able to connect with really who you it's being close to your essence. You haven't got this obstacle blocking you from from projecting yourself into the world, and that's why it keeps people happier. Um, but you've got to have a lot of respect for people's unique experience because you can't look at someone's face and tell what's holding them back. Um, sometimes you can, but quite often it's something that other people would say, that's nothing, it's just one wrinkle, but for them it means something different. And by removing it, you reconnect them with their essence, basically, and that's why it's so valuable. Yeah, I agree, Tim. And having escaped the UK because of the NHS and moved country, what element is there of people wanting to get out of the NHS to do aesthetics? Um, it's got to be a huge driver. I, I think a lot of very idealistic people go into healthcare and they, they want essentially what we know we can do, but you want it in healthcare. You want to make a difference to people. You want to see pain alleviated, um, concern alleviated, and um, that's what you go into it for. But when you're actually in the midst of it, it's you, eventually the stuff that you went into it for is squeezed out. And I remember having this feeling in my final year of GP, which is just, I haven't got time to connect with these patients. I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm, I feel this tension in my chest the whole time trying to get through the day. Um, and to be honest, I don't care about this patient's backstory. I need to make sure that they don't die um, so that I don't get into trouble. Um, and, then I'm, and then I get through my day without, spending, without being three hours late. Because you know, at its worst, it was that kind of equation going on. Um, and, and then you suddenly realize, why am I doing this? This, this is not fun at all. I can't, I can't put myself into this. I'm on the back foot the whole time. And what, if yeah. you picture um, you know, even you know, hospital wards and things like that, there's also this stress, the whole team together all stressed like that, and they don't always support each other. And that was another catalyst for me, was being in a department that, that that felt like everyone was about to, you know, bite your hand off for asking for help uh, because they're all so stressed and and just thinking there must be a way that I can live my life where I'm actually putting the best of myself out rather than being on the back foot. Uh, that's really common. Um, I, I ask that question on a webinar and always I get hundreds of hands going going up. I think that's a really common feeling. The yeah. job that you loved didn't turn out to be what what it was when you got there. So, so you made the decision to quit GP fairly recently. Yeah, uh, although I've actually gone back now because of the, the whole COVID thing. Um, of, yeah, of course. Um, I'm not Sorry. as needed as I thought it would be. But uh, yeah, that was, to be honest, it was largely due to just the workload 
in the business, um, which is another interesting thing about wishing for one thing and getting something else. Like <laughs> you can end up working an awful lot to keep your business going um, instead of your business keeping you going. Um, so um, I had an element of that and I've had to like look at things that I need to chop out in order to to kind of change things and move on to the next level. Um, so I quit for that reason. I didn't feel happy about it. I have to say, I didn't feel like it was the right thing and I'm clean and easy and off I go. It was more a difficult decision that I felt sad about and actually felt kind of good going back. So there's something in my identity that likes the whole being a doctor. Mm-hmm. So you started your training school roughly, what, 12 years ago? It's about, about that? Uh, the, we started injecting about 12 years ago. I started training about seven years ago. Okay. I'm interested to, to sort of know how your training has evolved over those years. I mean, in terms of perhaps treating lines and wrinkles and nasolabial folds and lips, how, how's your your training sort of regimen and your program sort of rolled out and changed over the years and how's it evolved? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, and this will probably resonate with lots of people, that when you've joined the industry, you kind of look around and see what the game is and you try and play that game. Um, you try and win in the game that's actually been decided by other people. Um, and, and actually, you don't have to do that. And I, I basically realized that my first, our first efforts at training were we took what was already going on in the industry and we made it better. We iterated on it. We made our group sizes smaller. We made our materials way better. Um, but we're still basically were re- repeating the same model. Uh, and then about two years ago, I decided like this, this isn't, this this doesn't feel like a gift from me. It feels like I'm I'm trying to compete with other people's ways of doing things and their margins and how much. And I just thought, what what would be the best thing I could possibly create? Which is where the, our mastery program came out of that idea. Which is instead of just teaching people on a on a particular course how to do a particular procedure, how do I do what I've been doing for my internal team um, and actually create something that's much more holistic that actually creates injectives who care about the psychological transformation and care about the artistic side and the safety and complications and, and, and create a program that actually will for a very small cohort produce that result. Cause this is no, I would say our first effort at training has been quality training, but at scale. And now I'm, I'm quite happy with cutting the scale right back, but increasing the quality massively because it feels, it feels more enjoyable um to me i enjoy it a lot more being having that closeness with a small group who are, who are coming out um and, and and i can teach them everything i don't have to hold them back and just wait too much on one day to teach you nasolabial folds plus cheeks or something i can do everything with them because I'm, I'm i'm with them till the end they're going to get an amazing journey because we'll, we'll probably add extra training onto them to make sure that i can actually put the word master over their certificate um but but that's the idea is i don't have to I don't have to copy other people's training. I get to decide um, that I can play my own game and 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 give them the best possible training. That, that's the idea anyway. Wheeling you back to your basic sort of intro level stuff, like what, what do you offer? How do you break that down and what does it look like? So um, we, so the, it depends how you, you mean your, your first ever kind of training day? Yeah, yeah. So I remember... It, <laughs> So the first thing we send them is um, is a 140-page booklet. And before they book onto the training day, they have to answer an MCQ to prove that they've read it because, you know, people being busy, um, a lot of them in the old days would turn up having not read it and then you, 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 they don't know what they're doing. So um, you've got to pass an exam to then enter onto the practical training day. And and this that would be our simple, simplest course. Um, but we're, 
what we're trying to move away from is to do as it like probably 10 times fewer numbers, but, but then doing 10 times as much training with the, with the mastery program. And that would be, that starts with all our online stuff. So we have huge amounts of um, stuff on the consultation, injection technique, complications, um, all of that is, is accessible immediately. And then you start to bolt on the practical. It's almost a reverse. You start to do the procedures after you've got this global understanding uh, of the risk and the impact. Um, so it's, it's the other way around that we're doing it now. But your first training day would be a, a small cohort with us of uh, kind of three or four injectors and one trainer and a full day of injecting. Yeah, I remember my uh, first, well, first time I did anything, I turned up to a training course and obviously they've even changed things now, but um, I think there was probably 10 of us in a room. We had some really boring lectures for two hours or so talking about the pharmacology of anti-wrinkle treatments, which no one really understood because it was so new to them. And then in the afternoon, they lined up, you know, 20 faces <laughs> and everyone just injecting them. They gave you a certificate and said, thanks very much. You can go and inject people now. Go and start a business. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just, um, like you said, it, f- it felt backwards. Like they gave you the skill to inject this stuff into a face with no idea of what that meant or, or the practicalities around it or, or the business sense. It, it's actually not that different most of the UK now. Um, I think there's a bit more competitive edge, but obviously the, the we've got what the same thing we have with injectors uh, in terms of providing treatments we have with training, which there, there are people um, who've who've been who've done a foundation course who open a training school as soon as they possibly can. Um, we have one in Manchester who does it in the back of a well home, <laughs> um, which is it's just, it's just amazing. So um, uh, and. The, the emphasis is certainly not on quality and holistic stuff. It's about, I'll show you where to inject. Do you want to know where to inject? Here we go. Pop it in. You know how to inject. And uh, it, was just, it wasn't that different for me. I was trained by a doctor, but it was the same thing. It was I injected one nasolabial fold on my first training course. I then complained about it, and they had another day on, and I got to do a bit more injecting. Um, but, you know, that was it. Eight people in a room, four, I think four models, a handful of injections, and off you go with your certificate. Um, it really does just hides the, the real depth you can get to with this, which is what I love about being able to play my own game now. Um, you know, I, I, I iterated on that idea, but now we're doing something totally different, which feels much more like the right thing to do, really. So if you were to um, get someone in on day one that's never injected before, how long does it take? Like, does your program take them up? Does it like sort of uh, occur in modules? Do you have to get them up to a certain level of competency? How long... Does that sort of take, or do you offer different levels of training and different modules depending on an injector's skill level and experience? And how long would it take to get someone to that from, say, not knowing anything to be able to comfortably do, say, your anti-wrinkle injections, lips and cheeks? Um, so mostly you're obviously, like most places, you're validating their their core skills in terms of managing medical risk and complexity is done by their by their background qualifications and a registered body. And then you're starting to add on. I mean, one of the biggest problems with our mastery program has actually been that some of the early validation stages are a bit they're a bit too onerous for someone who's who's already skilled. If you take a dentist and make them inject in front of a doctor for a day some really basic injections, they're they're a little bit like. I can inject. You don't need to watch this. So, but at the moment, everyone's going through that, and and we're probably going to iterate on that and see if we can validate it without the it feeling as laborious. But that's the idea: is your we we have a checklist of um, 
things that we practice first on one of these models. I'm holding a little silicon head for the podcast, but you can you can literally break down the stages of each injection um, and get that validated by one of our team and then do it on a real person uh, in exactly the same sequence. Now, if they're super shaky, you may not do it that way, but it's, a, it's that process of demonstrating it. And what I also like to see is that they can see how how adjustments in their technique will adjust risk. So if you change the angle slightly, you're going to be close to the artery. Do you understand that? You know, they should be talking you through how these changes um, will affect the risk. Um, and, and then there's, once you go through that whole checklist, um, you're kind of validated to move to the next level. Mm. Something that I see a lot of, I mean, I've got 12 injectors that work um, across my clinics and um, something that seems to be an issue, or well, not an issue, but a challenge um, that presents itself is, um, everyone's very keen to learn the latest technique, um, a new filler that hits the market, um, something they've seen on a YouTube channel, but something that seems to be consistently overlooked is the consultation process. Um, and from from my perspective, which is a business perspective, and I come from, a, I guess, a sales and, and marketing background, is um, tapping into what it is that your patient, customer, consumer, whatever you want to define them, what they really want and how to communicate to them. Um, how do you sort of teach people the consultation process? Because it seems to be something that so many people get wrong. But if you get it right, can make the difference between an average career and, and, and a phenomenal career. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and it's the most interesting bit. Um, so the I do, the, even at the beginning of our foundation course, I do, I do an introduction on that idea that you've got to realize that your patient isn't there for a wrinkle. Um, and uh, there's the... The, the inner story and the outer story. The outer story is the wrinkle. The inner story is how that wrinkle is stopping them from doing things. And half the time, they don't even know what that is until you ask them. So um, I try and reveal in as soon as possible, With even on the foundation day when we're doing really basic stuff, I will try and get the patient's story out. And most people love it. Most people are interested in people, interested in the... That's why we listen to stories. You know, If someone tells you a story about how this is causing conflict in their lives, and then you solve that for them. It's a, it's a, that's the essence of a great sales process, but it's also the essence of a meaningful process, and the patient loves it as well. And uh, too often, I think people are they're a little bit ashamed. They don't want to be prying. They don't want to go into someone's personal life when they just want to have their, wrinkle, their wrinkles treated, but they're really missing the most important bit. So I try and get that out as soon as possible. And I, I, because I love it so much, I can't. I always run late because I'm always trying to pull the story out um, uh, instead of just do the injections. Um, but um, just knowing that it's about the patient's story is the key thing. Now, there's a million things you can say about how to extract that and how to make a patient comfortable so they actually open up um, the words to use. But the key is you've got to know that the number one priority is to find out why they are really there, which is never just to have or have filler it's a it there's much more deeper than that so if you if you get them to answer that question why are you really here um then you will you'll automatically be into a completely different realm of treatment ideas because their story is usually much more interesting and complex just to interject there i reckon i don't know exactly a percentage but there is a small percentage you know exactly what they want and it doesn't matter what you say, you can pry, you can do a full face assessment, et cetera. They're like, yeah, that's great. I just want my frown lines done. And I mean, do you still see that in your, in your consultations, Tim, or, or have you taken things further where you can sort of, you know, tease other things out? Um, there's, you've got to give them the reason to tell you their story. And this is one of the things, um, like, if you just walk up to someone and say, tell me your real reasons for wanting <laughs> they're going to close up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
So what what I normally would start with, you probably heard me say this on the podcast, but you, they need to have what's the what's the what are they getting in return? What in return is my purpose here is to find out how I can best solve your particular issue. Like I really want you to feel on the front foot when you leave this. I call it the front foot feeling. That is the goal of this consultation. Now you you may already know the answer to that, but I but I might be able to do things you're not aware of, or it may not actually do what you want to do. So it starts with me understanding what's brought you here. And they'll say, well, I want to get my frown lines done. So, well, when is it that you actually notice your frown lines? What is it that you're seeing or feeling? And then they will, they usually give you some sort of anecdote, which is their real story. And I know in general practice, this is what patients talk about all the time when you're not interested in it. They want you to know that it's painful for them to walk down the stairs in the morning, but you don't need to know that to diagnose arthritis in their knee. It's different in aesthetics because you really do need to know it's painful for me when I look in the mirror because I look like my mother and I don't, and she died of whatever their story is. Like it, The real complexity comes out and often for the first time for them. And then more often than not, the treatment design to solve that problem is more complex than they realized, unless they're very educated patients who've studied this for years. So if they say that they look tired, you know, you you know as well as I do that that's not just going to be one area. Of um, and if you do it appropriately and correctly, it's actually it's it's an empowering feeling for them. They are very happy that you've told them that there's but more things you can do, and they're very happy that you can interpret their face and actually really explain to them why they look tired because it's not just their forehead lines. Um, but it's very subtle and nuanced. You've got to be you've got to be watching them the whole time to read their whether they're open or closed. I always think about it. Pa- patients are either. A, like I'm, I'm happy to tell you everything or they're closed. There's almost no in between. And you can see it with little blinks or little shifts in their seat. Um, and I'm always watching for that and trying to make them feel more comfortable, but lo- usually just by addressing it. Oh, you didn't, I feel, I got that feeling. You didn't like that question. Was that, is that because you, you just want to stay stuck with, you want to stay focused on the frown line that you've noticed? Cause that's fine too. I'm basically giving them permission to control the consultation. And weirdly, the yeah. more you do that, the more they tell you everything. So what have you learned about yourself as a, as a teacher and a trainer? How have you evolved? And did you even do any formal teaching courses? Yeah. I, um, so what have I learned about myself? The first thing is teaching. Teaching is an amazing way to actually get better at what you're doing because um, the moment you step into a room with four clinicians and you're trying to teach them something, you suddenly realize how much of what you do is idiosyncratic. You haven't actually got a reason for it other than you copied the previous injector and trying to force to the surface the reasons why you do something is the best possible way to really understand what it is why why you do what you do so i and i actually recommend because not 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 everyone's going to have a training school but start to do it with your patients actually justify particularly your nervous patients are helpful for this because they will drive drive you to justify and think more clearly and logically about everything you do so i learned a huge, I've learned more through training than by doing because it forces you to justify what you're doing. Um, so it's endless what I've learned in that realm. Um, uh, interestingly, I've also learned that people um, absorb stuff better through video than they do when I say it live. Like I've <laughs> a couple of times said something on a video, which I hammer in training that don't, people don't seem to respond to. I don't know because there's too much going on. But they'll see it in a video and say, oh, that really makes sense. I was like, yeah, you came to my training day. And I, I spoke about that for about an hour and you've latched onto one sentence. <laughs> so there's something in the complexity of a training day that, um, that doesn't allow everyone to absorb all, all the ideas at the right depth, which is why the multimedia backup is quite useful. Um, 
I really like training. I mean, that's the other thing I learned. You obviously can't keep going if you don't enjoy it. And it's the same as doing treatments. It's seeing that transformation, seeing someone go from an uncertain to a certain state um, through your training is, is really rewarding. I was going to ask, do you think that you've become a better injector yourself? I mean, I know for me, having sort of, you know, consulted with Allegan and sort of really forced myself to think about exactly what you said why am i doing this how am i going to teach someone how to do this if i'm not fully clear myself so you sort of challenge yourself to really understand your anatomy your pharmacology whatever it may be but how's your injecting style changed yeah it's it's a different world compared to the beginning because it's almost like the the it's not the noise but it's the detail of the mental map in your brain goes up and up and up to the point where uh, there was a stage probably about two years in where I was I was confident with the environment. I knew how to get good results. Um, and I, I remember someone, you know, these ideas pop into your head. Someone said to me right at the beginning, when you're a good injector, you'll be really fast. And that stuck in my head for a while. And so I had this idea that it's right now that I should be faster than I, than, than I was at the beginning. And I, I went through a phase of actually having slightly shorter appointment times um, and feeling good about that. And then yeah. I started training and it went completely backwards. And now, and the reason is, that it literally down to where I'm conscious of everything I'm doing because I'm teaching it. I know the position of my feet and my knees, and my hips and my shoulders and, you know, and, and the artery. And I'm, I'm, I'm much more, I'm much more lost in the process rather than thinking about the time and the, you know, what I'm doing next it, because it's, there's so much to think about. And actually you're in flow when that's happening and it's a good state of mind to be in, but it's extremely involving and much busier in my head than it was when I was two years in. Um, because every little nuance is something I'm consciously aware of and doing on purpose rather than unconsciously. Um, so it's better. It's more enjoy more enjoyable now. I can lose myself in a big procedure over two hours and with some music on, and it's great. But I'm thinking a lot. It's exhausting as well. Do you do you have any sort of um, common issues that your students tend to come up against? Like a, a common theme of things that people just tend to struggle with, and if so, like what would that be? Do you think? Um, the first, uh, the, n the number one reason we did a survey on this, um, the number one reason people quit is around complications, fear of complications. And, um, and it's, it's that it's not always that they are actually having complications. It's dealing with what happens after the procedure when the patient messages you back and says, you know, it's worn off after three weeks. I want a retreatment. It's, um, you know, I've got an asymmetrical eyebrow. I've got a bruise, whatever it is. Um, though that stress of dealing with the comeback puts a lot of people off in the early days. And so that's number one. Uh, the second thing is probably happens a bit sooner is that they, you, you suddenly confront that you have to put yourself out there, raise your hand to the world and say, I'm willing to offer you these treatments. And a lot of people find that very stressful because they've never had to do it before. Um, they risk their friends and family shooting them down. Um, they don't know how to do it. A lot of people go straight out and start selling. They put their price list up and they say, we're doing, you know, I'm offering procedures and they wonder why no one books in. Um, instead of building a brand and having a conversation. Um, and so they, they hit up against their limitations on, from the business side. I see that a lot with um, nurses and doctors that have come fresh from, um, I guess, therapeutic or real medicine, I'm inverted commas, um, where they working in some public hospital setting where they're used to giving things away for free. And for some reason, whether it be financial or just like in Jake's situation, just fed up with the public healthcare system, that they really struggle with that transition from actually having to ask people for money um, mm. and and sort of you're, you're now in their eyes, and we've sort of spoken about this earlier in the chat, is that they're now 
feel that they're giving a treatment that is not required and that whole that mental struggle of having to ask people for money is something that I see a lot with those people that have sort of come across to cosmetics from other industries. But now we're seeing a lot of people that are going into the industry, like they're studying nursing, for example, to become a cosmetic injector, and you're not going to have those issues. But the people that have sort of come across from that different world, it seems to be a, a real hurdle for a lot of people. Mm. I'll tell you something else that they do, I think, uh, possibly f- for the same reasons, is that they price themselves so so badly in the beginning because they um, they basically look at the cost of the product and how much time it takes them to deliver that product. And they think, uh, if I'm making £100 profit, that means I'm making £100 in half an hour. And they think they're gonna, that, that that's too much. And then they trim it down and they say, well, £50 in half an hour is great. So I'll do that. <laughs> and they're, they're not realizing that you've put eight hours in before you even get that patient. Um, and it depends on the system, but basically they, they don't understand the real profit margins is, is not what you make while you're with the patient. Like it's a, and, and they get it wrong from the beginning and then they lose hope. They sometimes finish their first year in the UK in debt because they, because they haven't priced themselves correctly um, and they, they drop out. They don't realize that it's a long-term game. It's a marathon. You've got to be getting enough in to incentivize you to keep going and not look at that time spent with a patient as how you weigh up how to price things uh, so we have a problem with prices basically low but then injectors come and go from the industry because they, there's no incentive for them to stay you've kind of answered my question what percentage of people who come to skin viva you know do you imagine don't make it or, or, or alternatively what percentage of people open a business and successful um so I've, I've not actually ever, we've not actually surveyed that in, in a way because it actually gets harder as soon as you actually decide, well, how do you define that? Because most of them are still in, I guess most of them are doing some sort of injecting, but does that mean they have a business or not? I, I always think, you know, being a lot of them actually come into it so that they can treat their friends and family and, you know, some colleagues at work. Um, the, we've certainly had some people who've done extremely well um, and kind of rocketed. And you can normally tell before they even before they even do their foundation course. They're the people who've already got stuff set up. Um, they're already um, got people waiting for treatments before they come in. Um, and they they tend to do really well. Um, but I don't know the exact percentage. I think the national average is kind of 15%. Uh, and I'd be fairly confident we're better than average because we give so much support um, afterwards. But I haven't actually surveyed them. And you'd have to, you'd have to be really clear what your definition of actually working means and, and at which point is it six months later is it a year later um is it that you've got a you're treating strangers who you've never met off the internet you know proper businesses can acquire cold leads and treat people versus um just people in your network it's that kind of thing that, so i don't i can't give you a specific number mm-hmm. but i'm pretty sure it'll be more than uh, better than average because of the extra support we're giving them mm. Also, see a little bit of a challenge with people that try to moonlight as injectors. So they're sort of got one foot in each camp, and they're just going, "Oh, this is a bit of fun. I'll make a bit of money on the side, and you know, I'll, I'll do my other job." And you seem to find those people just really—they still don't see it as like a proper career. This is just a bit of fun in an area to make money, but they don't seem to realise that if you want to be good, you've got to commit. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no shortcut. You're either you're either in or you're out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I say about our mastery program is it's, it's not for the dabblers. Like you're all in, like no one is doing that. So just do a little bit on the side. And there's so much more fun to train because they're after everything. They're not after just enough to get by. Um, and that's where all the, all the fun happens really. Uh, and you're missing out on so much if you think it's just about, you know, a couple of injections. 
Um, so you're completely right. That is the way that industry should go, is to realise that. That's sort of how I felt actually when I was in the UK, because I was training to be a surgeon, doing aesthetics when I could. And I sort of, you know, I was comfortable with, with what I was doing, but I was never getting better because, you know, I didn't have the time to dedicate to aesthetics. I was doing crazy hours as a surgical registrar in the NHS. So I completely agree. If you're going to really get good at something, you've really got to commit and say, okay, I'm all in. Yeah. And then there's nothing that you don't need to know because that whole idea, oh, I don't need to know that because it's uh, that should go away. You, you become very curious and, and everything's important. Do you give your um, delegates or students, whatever you call them, um, those basic business skills when they come to the course? Because that's, you know, you and I have spoken about this privately many times. You could probably train a monkey to inject a glabella, but the reality is that there's a lot more to it than that. So what do you teach them on the basic or, or the intermediate courses or how does it work? Uh, yeah. So we, I mean, we started out with a, it's kind of a high level, like what are the principles of client acquisition type course? And then we've gradually iterated more and more on that. We have a closed Facebook group, which we support people on um, a lot. And then we have a, a more open one, slowly only for medics, but people have, who may not have trained with us. Uh, my wife does a lot of mindset stuff. Uh, and that leads on to marketing quite a lot. Um, but we're, we're basically continuously iterating things. We have, we have um, you know, a few courses that are on customer acquisition through Instagram, for example, um, uh, the salon network, which we do in the UK. I don't know if you do it, but you're working in other people's businesses. How do you, so, so we, we provide um, kind of lots of information on some of that stuff. Some of them are now turning into more formal courses. Um, we've got more stuff coming out later this year on branding, personal branding. Um, so it, it's a continuous iteration because as it, it's almost like I was just saying to my wife this morning that every page on our, on our introductory business module, it could be like a five-day course. And it's that realization that you can make this as complicated as you want. And uh, I'm sure you guys, you may not have ever done a course, but you've got so much information in your in your brains from doing the do that you, if you were to actually spell it out, it would be tens of thousands of words. And that's what we're kind of confronting now, which is you can learn this stuff by just Googling when you get stuck. And that's basically what I did for my business. I didn't do any business courses at all. Um, uh, and and the, the few people I've had who... Um, uh, who we paid like later on business advisors, people with MD MBAs mm -hmm. on the whole, haven't given us great advice. Um, I was told not to start <laughs> training by someone who was like, Oh, there's no opportunity. It's too competitive. And it's like, well, it definitely wasn't. That was a great business decision for us at the, at the start. Um, cool. so, um, some of it that what we've now got is this raw, this real wisdom that you get through actually butting up against reality and then trying to turn that into courses for, to help other people do it faster than we've done it um, is a real challenge, but there's huge amounts to learn. And uh, But that's basically what we're working on at the moment is putting more of those into formal courses. We have the ones that, are, that we give away free. There's loads of blogs and stuff where it's the same information, just less spelled out. Um, and that, that we're, we give on demand. Anyone asks a question on the group, we will give them the blog on that topic. And those yeah, people I can imagine your course. Sorry, sorry. I was, was going to imagine your course is extremely well thought out, but there's lots of other competitors who will literally teach you cookie cutter how to, you know, inject a face and say thanks very much. But there's a lot more to it, isn't it? There's finding a place of work. There's finding a prescribing doctor. There's working out your digital or paper notes system. There's online bookings. There's 
uh, your suppliers and how do you order and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think your average, you know, novice candidate will not even have anticipated that. They just think I need to know how to inject a face. And then they go out in the real world and they go, ah, where do I actually uh, find people to come and see me? And now I need to build a website, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is um, they're not necessarily open to hearing about that at the beginning. I certainly tried this with friends who want to get into aesthetics and they're, you know, I'll give them loads of free advice for what they need to do. And they're not interested. They want to book onto the course first. So they book onto the course and then they confront the next, the next obstacle. Um, the thing that we've done that's worked really well is having this continuous conversation with people we train. So we put them on a closed Facebook group and then we, we basically are continuously answering those questions. Uh, and that, that enables us to be really in touch with the real barriers that people have uh, and then to help them over those um, and develop, you know, more sophisticated learning material, almost, in response to their specific needs. But it is interesting that a high percentage of people are not open to what they really need, what they need. They just want what they want. And it is actually a marketing term. I don't know if you've heard it, which is sell people what they want, not what they, and then give them what they need. Um, I quite like that idea because no one, no one Googles what they really want, what they need. They Google what they want, and then you need to somehow serve them with what they need. It's the same as the aesthetic consultation. People want, sorry. People want dermal filler, um, and then you can uh, you actually you actually find out what they really need and give them that. What do you do when you're confronted with a student that just just doesn't get it? Like they're just all thumbs. They they're just not picking it up. I mean, do you just have a quiet conversation and say, "Look, you know, this probably isn't for you," or do you let people struggle through? Or how do you deal with those situations? Um, it's a lot like the aesthetic consultation and you, you've got to have some preparation for that moment. So we will say at the beginning of each day, um, some sort of warning shot. Like if you, if you're too shaky to do this, if you don't respond to the advice from the, from the trainer, you repeat mistakes, you don't seem to be, you're too nervous to inject. All of those things will mean that we will highlight uh, before we get, because it's usually before we do the, the dermal filler, um, that you're, you won't be able to inject further. And we will offer them something if they want to come back and try again. And a very high number of those people just don't come back because they get it. So like, this isn't for me. Um, uh, some of them will come back and some of them have gone on to be successful too. I can think of a couple who, who failed their foundation days, repeated them, and then are actually practicing now. Uh, you know, reasonably successfully. So some people are just a bit nervous and they just need a bit more time. Um, but yeah, it's essential. Uh, I mean, especially for me, the, the biggest thing is I have, I have a team of doctors who do this for me and they're not connected with the the business side. They're connected with the ethical side really deeply. So they, they won't, for them, it's quite nice actually. They're, they're not incentivized to pass people. It makes no difference to them whether they pass or not. They won't even be mentioned in the review. And so they've been really good at pushing back um, and making sure that we we're making that that safety side because they there's for them they see it as their name it's their name underneath the certificate and the other thing I like to say to them is I want you to feel proud of the work that you do regardless of anything else and if you're ever leaving a course not feeling proud of what you're doing then there's a problem that we need to solve um, and uh, and certainly that's that's a continuous discussion that we have um, and that's the backing they get from me which is you need to be failing people who aren't safe. And that leads me on to the next question. And of course, this is going to be different. It's going to depend on people's budget and time when they're training. But 
do you have like a pathway or a syllabus of, um, you know, you should be doing basic anti-wrinkle on this weekend. And then if you show competence and, and you sort of pass our MCQ, et cetera, then in a week or a month or six months, when, how fast should the progression be for training? Um, yeah, that's a really hard one to say, which is why we have these, these shadowing days, um, are part of it, but but I'll be honest, they're not popular with the injectors because it feels to a percentage of them that it's they're not actually that it's because you're being validated rather than being taught something. People don't like being validated, um, so they're not popular. But we do that. We do those days where they are shadowed by an injector um, with basic procedures. Um, before that, before the mastery program, it was that you had to had to have done a certain number of procedures and you could apply to the next course also not popular because many training schools will just it doesn't matter where you are you can do any course you just book on um and that also came back from pushback from our from our clinical team because they don't like seeing someone who's done the foundation course appear on the lip course like the day after and they're still not injecting yeah. safe so so we we ended up we've iterated over time by putting increasing numbers of steps to prove that they're safe to do the next stage um uh, and that seems to work fairly well um there's so much difference between injectors, though. Like, I actually think the biggest difference is, is, is just something about the person. Some people have just got dexterity and control and composure. And it's not about, and weirdly, the, 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 the people we fail the most are doctors. And we looked at all our data, and it was actually, I think it's a, there's a cohort of, of people approaching retirement who want to get into aesthetics. And it's just a bit harder at that stage. Um, uh, so, and and it's and it possibly also correlated with a little bit of arrogance going into it that it's only injections, um, so that so that they're they're actually they haven't been nervous enough to study the booklet and to think about it, and they're maybe out of a hectic uh, kind of ward situation, and and they just feel a bit overwhelmed on the day, which they weren't expecting. That's my explanation for it, but it's it is interesting. I've got a slightly different theory on that. Um, when you so you're saying so you're saying that doctors are the predominant people that fail your course, did you say? Yeah, they were slightly higher um, yeah. when we looked at the data than the than others. I've always, I've always wondered: is it because medicine typically attracts the very analytical brain, not the artistic brain? I'm, I'm generalizing. I'm, I'm generalizing on a, on a major scale, but I would think that traditionally the people that are attracted to medicine are into the sciences, mathematics. You know, it's black or it's white. Um, whereas people perhaps that are attracted in nursing, a bit more people orientated, maybe slightly more artistically inclined, you tend to see, you tend to, you might, you might, maybe that's a reason why some doctors fail. That it just that's a different brain, and then they're trying to take an analytical brain, and then move it into what is sort of like your half artist, half doctor kind of thing. <laughs> Would you think there's any truth to that, or am I just? Uh, I, I, honestly, I actually think I actually think you've gone right to the heart of one of the elephants in the room in our industry, which is we we do like the idea of the safety and the anatomy and all that stuff, but there's there's one crucial thing which is you, you've got to like the aesthetic, and you've got to have a brain that functions in that way. So I I think you could be bob on with that. It could be exactly the reason, um, because there's there's definitely a, there's there's a type of there's a type of brain that can do these things and there are type that, I mean, everyone can be trained to do it safely um, or well, not everyone, but you fail them, but there's definitely something in that idea of the aesthetic. Well, everyone can paint, not everyone can be an artist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting point. Well, too uh, much thought... um, you did some sculpting recently with Teresa. Tell me about that. <laughs> Yeah, you can just see her in the background. Well, you, you weren't on the podcast, but oh um, yeah, no, I can. Yeah, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it's. I really recommend people try it. Um, I've actually done about four sculptures now, and you won't see the first two because they're awful. Um, and uh, but it's such a. It's this whole problem with trying to convert something into something that's very analog into something that's digital. Um, it's a really interesting problem to try and solve, and and you can do it with you know MD codes are great at at getting people on that journey. But there's there's something you can't replace with with actually seeing something that you dislike, <laughs> and trying to fix it and sculpting and not even knowing what's wrong with it, and then suddenly it goes into the position that you need, and you get a zing in your head, like you know that's what it should look like. That it looks looks more human now, and sculpting will take you on that journey, and it's sometimes unpleasant, like you get stuck and you like it's it just looks like an alien, um, and you don't want to show anyone. <laughs> And you keep you keep going, and in those moments of struggle where you where you have a little breakthrough, um, it's the most wonderful learning experience, and it's really good for your mental health. Like you lose yourself, and you and and you're expressive, and it's all, you know, it's you're involved with the texture of it. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I recommend someone do it, but it, but it is difficult, and you need to do three or four um, over time, and you'll get better with each one. Do you think there's any benefit to injectors, perhaps? Um, taking a leaf out of the artistic book in terms of learning about symmetry, proportions, line, form, shadows, all those sorts of things that are very standard when you're looking, whether you're sculpting, drawing, painting, whatever your medium is, there, there are some universal truths um, that, that tend to resonate through all, all mediums of art. Is that something that perhaps injectors should look at doing as well? I, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you'll ever be top of your game if you, ne if you don't get to that stage. I think you can treat lines and wrinkles. Um, you know, that's fine. And some people are, just don't resonate with that stuff. There are some very successful people who are not doing full, beautiful face transformations, and, and that's fine. Um, you don't have to do that. But if you want to be great at something, then you have to get to that stage because, firstly, you'll find you'll, you'll butt up against the limit of that when you get a patient who is that way inclined. Like I have a, I have a few patients who are artists, and they are very hard work because they are they're trying to drive this 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 awareness they've got into your conscious brain and your heart, you know you don't always see it um when it's i know them cycle sorry <laughs> it's called bdd isn't it <laughs> well it's re it's really interesting because that that's what i might have said um for some no, of these people when you first meet because <laughs> sorry siri on my ipad she decided to talk to me sorry about that <laughs> You're absolutely right, though, that there, there's, there's something that's a bit like BDD about it because they're sensitive to these small imperfections. The bit that isn't like BDD is that they are, they are happy when you get it right. And that's the differentiator. You, will, you, you can meet someone who's very hard work because they're talking about these tiny little contours and shadows. But for me, the guiding light is when you correct it and you can see a small difference and they're happy, that's no longer BDD. If they're unhappy, then you've still got BDD. Um, but it is it, it gets harder and harder to diagnose when you get a more and more aesthetically inclined patient. And it's more about their demeanor, about how miserable they are about it than it is about the detail that they're seeing. Um, but I mostly I appreciate those patients for, that's the way I look at it, for making me think harder about the aesthetic. No, I was joking, actually. You're right. You meet some patients who are really in tune with what you're doing. They can't obviously do it because it's not their skill, but they know what it should look like, and they know sometimes how to translate that from a syringe to a result, and you're just the the tool or the catalyst to get them there. And when you get it right, it, it makes sense. So I was sort of joking before. Yeah, but it's... it's uh, uh, 
you know, what's a, a many a true word said in jest, that, that is actually what people, that's what you sometimes think with the most challenging patients is, have I finally got a, a mad patient versus, um, you know, as in they've got BDD or, or are they just hyper aware of the detail? Uh, and there is a question in your mind when, when they're pushing you beyond what you can see initially. And then, then what I normally do is park it, delve in more, try and understand it, see if there is something there. I'll never inject anyone unless I'm clear about what it is that they're seeing. And that sometimes takes 10 minutes, different lights. I've got patients who know the light around my clinic and they'll take me. Unfortunately, one of the, one of the lights that's apparently the best is in the men's toilet. So, <laughs> so, uh, so occasionally we're in there with the mirror trying to get the best light. Uh, as long as I can see it, I can treat it, but I don't treat anything if I can't see it. You definitely develop an artistic eye over time. I mean, I I'm, do art in, in my world outside of business and you definitely develop um, a sensitivity um, and sometimes that's difficult to translate. So I understand what you're saying. These people that are hyper aware may come across as them just being overly pedantic or dysmorphic. But I think, yeah, what you're saying, it depends on how distressed they get about it. But you definitely, you definitely develop a sensitivity um, when you're sort of engaging in artistic pursuits, which I guess could be frustrating for someone who's comes from that background that doesn't know how to articulate what they what they want in terms that you as an injector can understand. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's a really important point for people to hear because I think sometimes people, you know, they'll see me sculpting. I think, oh, he can do that. That's not me. And, um, you know, I've been on a journey with that. And I, I remember on my first course, sit, treating someone's nasolabial fold and being like, well, what was the point in that? Like, it looked, they look pretty much the same to me. Um, and that was because I didn't understand this all yet. And um, you have to have that that approach that you can develop it, and you and that means your default for all your patients to ask for things that you can't quite sure is to really explore it, really get into understanding it, and you'll have it's like sculpting. You have that moment where it pops into your head, and you're like, oh yeah, I can see it. Actually, usually you get it. I'm sure Jake, you've had this many times. You're injecting, and you you do the what you've been trained to do, but then something else happens when you look at them, and they actually look more attractive they actually, you actually get a zing in your head of like, wow, this person is actually, I actually feel differently when I look at them now. And that's the, almost the closure of this aesthetic loop, which is you're doing the injections, you're trained to do, you're putting on the zygoma, and then you get the result. And there's, there's a learning in that, which you need to repeat a few thousand times and you get really good at knowing when you can create that result. Uh, Tim, I'm going to ask you a controversial question. <laughs> in Australia, it's different as well. So we're not going to kind of compare it to Australia and the UK, but what sort of people are you training? Who's coming to your course? What backgrounds do they have? So uh, we train, so this, this is, a, this is a, a controversial question in the UK because there's politics involved. Um, what I've tried to do is make a the most um, robust logical defense, uh, lo logical position in terms of competency. And it starts with understanding like what, what is what is what is the foundational skill that we are saying um, validates you know a doctor to inject now if it, i know that in in australia you're more you're doctors aren't you do you have dentists as well doctors nurses and dentists but we'll come on to dentists in a sec because they they sort of fall into a, an unusual category here okay so the, there's something around what is the foundational skill like and the way where i've got to um, because we have to make the decision out on our own. Um, and while we're busy trying to draw a line, the NHS is constantly training people up to do different jobs. And we've seen this most, con most the first controversy I was aware of was the nurse prescribers 
back in 2002 when I started, that was a new thing. And um, a lot of the doctors are very unhappy about nurse practitioners, you know, like they shouldn't be doing it. It's a doctor's job. There's a lot of politics around that. Um, they've subsequently proved themselves. And that's, that creates a shift in where we, how much independent responsibility you think someone can have. And, and this, is, this is what I think the foundational skill is when you have to look at it um, on, the, on the, the fundamentals is, is this person validated to manage a basically a disease process or a health guidance process where there's diagnosis, there's treatment planning, there's risk mitigation, uh, and there's discharge? So, so people, if you tr if you try and that's the bit that you're saying is validated by a university and by a governing body. The the bit that um, that I do is then teach them a technical skill that gets bolted on top of that. I'm not a university, so I'm not I'm unable to validate someone to manage a disease process and what I'm doing. I'm just looking at, do they have some other validation for that? Um, what we're doing with our mastery program is a, it's prescribers only. Cause I think for me, that's now currently in the UK, you can be a, you can be a nurse who's just left. Well, anyone can do it to be honest. Beauty therapists are doing it. There are reams of them li lining up in these conferences, thousands of them training. Um, but we have, uh, so, but you, but similarly in the old days, it was kind of seen as the basic standard that a if you're a nurse, you can do it. Um, and what that what that then became a, an issue for is we have clinical pharmacists who are trained to prescribe. Basically, it's very hard to distinguish them from a GP if you watch them in their work. So they they're they will do vaccinations, they do injections, they make diagnoses, they discharge patients, and they want to train too. And uh, so so this this is where it all falls apart. Like you can you can if you want have a political point of view, which is I'm going to protect the, the the current the status quo, whatever it was, and this this will be who we train because that's what everyone who is already being trained feels comfortable with. Um, or you can try and make a and that's how we started. But essentially, I started to get multiple complaints, and there's still various people complaining, and and as you look at the claim, it, it just became for me it felt indefensible to say that clinical pharmacists, for example, and they're the ones who seem to have caused the most um, the most controversy, that I can't add on the technical skills. There's, there are only about 5% of our, of our training school, but it has been controversial. It would make no difference to me if we didn't train them financially. Um, but it's but I made that decision, and then obviously you get your flack back for it. So I have been criticized um, by some sectors and supported in others. And, um, and I've kind of, that that's, I, I've ingrained myself into that position to such a point that I, I'm not going to change my position on it because it feels robust to me. If you say that a, in terms of fairness, now, if, if I was in Australia, well, actually Australia, you're saying you do, you do train other people too, but say it was only doctors. If that was the, the kind of consensus, I might say, well, dentists are qualified to level seven. And I do a lot of injecting. I'm going to train them too. But I, what I wouldn't do is like make an argument for someone, someone else, like, you know, uh, healthcare assistance because they take blood. You know, it's not that kind of thing. It's a matter of like, what is what is the situation? Where is the bar that we think is normal? What is the foundation behind that bar? And therefore, to be fair, who else should have a shot? It's it's it, that kind of position. It's a lot. It's a lot more. Um, I think it goes a lot deeper than. I mean, people will hide behind it. I mean, I know you might not be able to comment on this because you don't want to put yourself in a compromising situation. But um, I can't help but feel there's a level of um, people being disingenuous about what their concerns are. I mean, there are a lot of people that are simply trying to protect their turf, protect their financial interests by saying that certain people shouldn't be able to inject and where it should be. I understand there should be a base level of competency and whatever we agree that whatever we agree should be, that should be the case. 
but there is definitely a financial element and people use hide behind um, claims of safety really when they're trying to protect their financial interests, which I find infuriating because all it does is cast the whole industry into disrepute and make and, and creates these turf wars, which I think is 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 not constructive. Yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely. There, there is that. And there's an, an added element, which I was a bit blind to as well, which is the the question of status. It's not so, mm. not so much about the financial. Um, yeah. It's, it's the feeling that a plastic surgeon gets when he's standing next to a nurse in the same room. Um, he doesn't feel like his status is being recognized. So um, that, there's a, that, that's almost more powerful than whether or not they can set up a business at the other end of it. It's that sense of, are we really on the same level? Um, which I understand, like we've all had that feeling. I wouldn't feel great at a training course next to, you know, someone who, was, who had no degree and no medical training, and they're also learning to inject. I, I you know, I'd feel very uncomfortable with that. So um, it, but it is, it's complex and if you, the only justification I think is you've got to make it about patient safety and you've got to get to the bottom of what it is that you're saying is the foundation skill. And for me, it's that you, you have to have a regulatory body. You have to be validated to manage, manage medical complexity at a certain level. And it is technically, it's a technical skill um, as long as you've got those abilities to communicate and manage risk. Um, I'm open to whether you could make an argument that it should be level seven, which means, which is what we have in the UK. We have this level seven qualification, which means you're then validated at a higher level of complexity. I don't know if your levels are the same, but we have the system from level one to level eight. And um, that is about the complexity you operate in. And a good example is anatomy. My little boy is seven. He knows anatomy. He can tell you, he knows the brachioradialis in, in your arm. He knows your lungs and your esophagus, but he's not level seven anatomy. <laughs> so, and that's where people get it wrong. In the UK, we have this issue with beauty therapists who say, I've studied anatomy. And they have studied anatomy, but at level four. Um, and they're not studying how to relate that to risk and complexity. So it's not that they're not, they might be able to do it as individuals, but from a validation point of view, they haven't got that. And that's where it gets complex is what are you validated and at what level and what can you bolt on at the same level? Yeah, I think we've got the same questions here, just a different um, landscape. I mean, we don't have a formal qualification. We don't have a formal syllabus. Um, there is this big hoo-ha at the moment, uh, not versus doctors and nurses, but because of um, when we were locked down for COVID and now we're emerging out of lockdown, there are you know various bodies and associations trying to jostle for position, power, opening early, whatever, you know, the... the the issue may be and so it really all boils down to the same question I think of and you you know you're running your own training school so you're probably in a better position to answer this but do we need a global or a national aesthetic college like a proper formal college that sits down and says this is the national standard doesn't matter whether you're a nurse doctor dentist if you hit this qualification you pass um yes i think that that is the fairest thing it's still deeply controversial because we have the level seven and what happened interestingly was the the mostly there are doctors who've done the level seven in fact doctors quite like qualifications in general but probably the biggest resistance was from the old school doctors in the industry who were like what is this mickey mouse level seven thing um when i've when i'm a doctor so that they actually resisted it um yeah. and yeah. you can understand why because it also that 
that the implication was if you've got a level seven qualification, you are then validated. Um, and that's that key word again. Um, and they, at one point, beauty therapists were going to be allowed to do that qualification with the argument being that they've now proven themselves probably in front of a doctor that they can inject safely and consult safely. And, and that is from a patient safety point of view would be great, except that there was no governing body to go with that. So there was no, as we know from doctors, sometimes they do stuff that's wrong and they need to be struck off. Now we would not, we wouldn't have had that situation. You could still train to do level seven and then go off and inject and not, and not actually be, um, be, uh, be governed by any, anybody. So that that's the missing piece, but it, but it hasn't gone down well. In fact, the word level seven has almost been, has a slight negative connotation in some, in some circles because of this association which is basically the politics involved with it. But as a as an idea, the idea that you validate your your skills, really good idea, and and that would be the best thing to do. Um, it's just it's the entry requirements that are controversial. If you were being purely objective, you would only care about the exit requirements, which is yeah. what have you said this individual can do? You wouldn't care where they came from. You'd you'd care that they were monitored once they qualified. Um, but I think that's a political mountain to climb. But that would yeah. be fair. I guess the barriers for entry are, or well, at least here in Australia, both fillers and uh, toxins are prescribable products. So already the bar is you've got to get this stuff from someone. Therefore, you need a prescribing doctor or you need to be a doctor or you need uh, a nurse practitioner. And so already that filters out all the people who don't have access to that system. Whereas what you're saying in the UK is slightly different because fillers are not classified as prescription drugs. Is that right? Yeah, they're not anyone can get them. And that, that I think should change. It doesn't make sense to me either. Well, that seems to have created that kind of weird imbalance in the U UK where, you know, you could be a plumber and set up fills fillers because anyone can do them. Yeah, well, it, it's it's some of that is, is, is we're a victim of the freedoms given to non-prescribing nurses because basically this industry, when I first started, was is dominated by non-prescribing nurses. You had a few doctors who was prescribing 100 prescriptions a day over the phone supporting non-prescribing nurses. So that system was set up. Um, then they made it has to be face-to-face, -face, which makes it harder. But essentially, the idea that you don't have to be the prescriber is woven into our system. It sounds like it's different for you. Like you actually have to prescribe for your for your patients rather than prescribe for a hundred other people's patients. Um, so that's that set up a, the system in a bad way really um, so that it became quite easy for that prescriber to turn their attentions to a beauty therapist and lots of them are doing that. That's the loop on that's closing slightly because the NMC have said they don't want that. I think they have anyway. Certainly uh, some of the big bodies, BSEN, very clearly saying their members can't prescribe for non-medics. Right. So that kind of doesn't make a difference. And what was the body you mentioned, JCCP? What do they do? Um, so the JCCP was set up from a government, from the, the Keogh, I might get some of the nuances of this incorrect, but the, the Keogh review, Lord Keogh reviewed the whole industry in response to complaints um, and decided to try and sort out the mess in an apolitical way. So they essentially came up with what you suggested, which let's, let's set up a voluntary re regulatory body. And in order to join this body, you need a level seven qualification. And then uh, everyone who's a member of that body will be recognized as a safe and effective practitioner. And we'll look at it purely as a, as a technical skill. Patient safety is at the heart of it too, but you can train up to this level and it could be a beauty therapist or it could be a doctor and everyone can join. And of course, the doctors are like, what the hell? I'm not going to join the same body as a beauty therapist. Um, yeah. And so they then 
separated the two registers, which is a fairly meaningless political move where they had like two registers. You could join one with non-medics, one with medics, but that's just a paper exercise. So it didn't go down very well. There's a lot of resistance. And then the JCCP um, then said, right, we're not, this is holding back the whole program so much that we're not going to support beauty therapists. And then it became the, the level six qualified healthcare professional who could then bolt onto level seven. And, um, but they did a lot of harm to themselves in that early process because of the whole status thing. So it, uh, I don't know where they are with numbers. I think the idea is fundamentally good. I think they're, they're facing a huge political problem. And, you know, a lot of us feel, a lot of doctors feel like we're regulated already by the GMC. Why would we need to join another, uh, another body? So it is, it is held back. And am I not right in saying that it was voluntary anyway? So it's a bit of a joke. You could either do it or not, and it would make no difference. Yeah, and this is this is all over the UK. There's basically this perverse incentive to do the right thing, which is that that means someone who's already regulated, um, who's already regulated by the GMC or the NMC, then has to pay a significant amount of money to boy, to join a body to validate their something they they already validate. They might feel already validated to do. So it's extra paperwork. It's extra cost. Um, meanwhile, their competitor down the road who's not medical isn't allowed to join it anyway and is operating freely with, you know, as we know, from a purely business perspective, regulation slows you down. That's the only thing it does from a business perspective. We're all better off purely as entrepreneurs without regulation, um, unless you think about the competition element. But um, so, so there's this weird situation where the more, the more appropriate you are to do this, the harder your business gets to run. Um, and it's all over the UK in terms of this double standard where where the, the, the non-regulated side are freer to operate. Um, and it's, it will. Ne- I don't think it'll take off unless they make it compulsory. And the only reason that I was involved in, in kind of trying to encourage it and support it is because I think it's the best shot we've got at getting some sort of regulation. The idea is if every, enough people join it and it's proven to work and they get the data, that they then make it into legislation. But I don't think our current government, especially with this whole COVID thing, are going to be in the mood for a new thing to regulate. So I, I don't I don't think it's around the corner. Yeah. I mean, I guess, and again, it's the same thing here. Do you think the horse has already bolted? If you've got, I don't know how many injectors there are in the UK, but if you've got thousands of people with businesses, patients, uh, clinics, properties, um, all sorts of things linked together, you, it'd be very hard to suddenly go, do you know what? You guys and the clinical pharmacists actually can't do this anymore. Sorry. I think that would be very difficult and they'd get a massive backlash. Yeah, I don't know what the numbers are um, of beauty therapists doing it, but I've, I've heard people say, you know, at these convention centers that the queues are around the block for people queuing up to train. So um, there are there are thousands of people training. Um, I don't know... Um, I don't know what the practicalities of going back on something, but I, I think it would take, like with anything, it would take a degree of pain. And actually what I mean, what I think that means is I think someone's going to have to die before they, before they think it's dangerous enough to regulate. And we have a beauty therapist up the road who's doing, you know, buttock enhancement with, with all sorts of fillers that he's buying from wherever. Um, and, you know, this, that's a really risky procedure. Many plastic surgeons won't do it. So someone will probably die from that eventually. And then, then maybe someone will do something about it. But at so, the moment, yeah. So so it's about end because that's what triggered a whole debate here two or three years ago, where um, a non-registered doctor from another country treated someone here in Sydney, and 
but ultimately killed them. Um, combination of a strange procedure, filler in the breast, but the actual issue was um, high toxicity of local anaesthetic and painkillers, and, and they unfortunately died. And as a result of that, which was not a nurse, you know, involved at all, there's been this spotlight on, you know, people working without doctors or, or working in, in um, you know, non, non-medical clinics, et cetera, et cetera. And from then it's just been kind of dog-eat-dog, turf war kind of thing going on with, we're just going round in circles with a similar argument to what you're saying about who can inject, why can they inject, where should they inject, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think anyone's got an answer, to be completely honest. Yeah, um, it's because of the confusion between basic science and politics. Like, if you if it was purely evidence based, it would be easy, but it's never going to be evidence based. It's going to be political, um, mm. and that makes it a lot harder because the evidence is so hard to gather, like in an objective way. Um, but also, it's a, it's a little bit like this whole COVID thing. You can see how people use an incident, whatever the incident is, to promote their specific ideology, and it becomes, you know, I told you. You know, the, you know, I always thought that's quite interesting with COVID, how, you know, the green lobby were like, it's great because now there's no smoke cloud over China and we're all staying at home and playing with our kids. But <laughs> obviously the other side of the spectrum is no one's making anything and the, the economy is collapsing. And, um, you know, some people are like, it's a conspiracy because the government and it's, it's basically whatever you want it to be, you can use an incident to support it. So those I'm sure you would have had plenty of people saying, uh, well, look, a doctor did it. So therefore nurses should be able to inject because there's no guarantee that being a doctor makes you any safer. Um, yeah. You know, all that stuff comes out of these things, and and mostly it's it's actually noise. It doesn't get you to the heart of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, turning things slightly happier, where do you think training's going? Teaching's going? What's the future of aesthetic teaching? Can you think of any cool ideas or new things that you've seen? Uh, I think we're going to, well, kind of related to the other question. We're, we, as I said, we have the split in the industry. Because there's no regulation, we're going to have a much wider spectrum from people who will train you in, in a camper van, camper van for 100 quid um, <laughs> to, to, you know, really big, uh, complex training programs that are pushing pushing the bar. Um, so that that's I think that's where it will go for the people, for this basically the the people who who are really passionate about aesthetics, not not just business building, um, would be something along the lines of longer training, uh, more detailed, more more complex more enjoyable more expensive because you can't possibly give all that value for 100 quid so um uh, and and there'll be a, a split like there is in the, certainly in the uk like there is in the industry in general because you have um you know you will have people who are doing group on offers for, for 70 quid and you'll have people who, who are doing a totally different business model and both will survive in the same way as mcdonald's can survive and michelin star restaurants can survive um but it's a, it'll be a continuous competition to make sure that you're not you're choosing your battles. Like you can't be competing on price if you if you want to if you're a doctor. You know you need to be competing on quality. I don't know if you've um, seen or done any of this because you, you do your own cadaver course, don't you? Yeah. Um, have you ever seen any virtual reality or augmented reality where you get to inject a sort of a face in space, or you get to peel back the layers of a cadaver in front of you? Have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, I'm aware of them. I've never. I've actually done. Yeah, but it does sound pretty interesting. Yeah, I had a play, um, Allegan sort of had a concept where you wear, a, I don't know the brand, but uh, one of these sort of lenses and you can sort of, you know, do anatomy in front of yourself sort of in space. It was pretty cool. I mean, it was a, 
beta version. But I think, you know, some of the stuff like the Cadaver courses, they're amazing, but they're so expensive, difficult to run. They can only happen at certain times. And in this part of the world, we, we often go to Singapore because it's presumably easier to source cadavers. I've no idea. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the stuff like that just becomes hard to run consistently. And you've probably found that yourself. Um, yes. So it's it's the same the same issue we've touched on a few times, which is this whole question of what is it that we're really doing? Is this purely um, superficial and um, meaningless? And therefore, why would you give your body to science to someone for to someone to do that? So we, we butt up against that issue, which is, uh, for example, they won't let you teach techniques. You can only teach complications, which is fine. It's the right thing to do there. But you can't, you certainly in the UK, that's the, that's the big issue is you, you can't be, let's see what happens when you do a full face restoration and where the filler ends up. It's always about not causing injury. Okay. Um, and that's kind of fair enough, but it's, it, it does once again, touch at the philosophical debate at the heart of what we do. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I think we've probably hit an hour and a half now, so we're going to call it a day, but Exciting news is, Tim, you're going to join us on a webinar in the future. We haven't got a date yet, but we will announce that at some point in the near future. Sure. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, stay safe. Um, so you're going to open up, you said, in what, maybe another two, three, four weeks? Fourth uh, of July um, seems to be um, the date on most people's cards. We've got a lot of mathematics to do, uh, as I'm sure you have, David, around like mm -hmm. what does this actually mean in terms of the appointment lengths of time and the costs and your overheads and all that, which is harder when you've got a, a bigger team than if you're an individual. Um, but uh, I think it'll be in July sometime. As I said, I'm, Sorry, my I main goal is not to do this. The spot, but have you thought about you know the protocols? I mean, I'm sure there are just common sense things to do. Has anything stood out for you that maybe is less obvious that you might implement? Um, well, we're thinking about trying to use two rooms for one clinician um, and spreading out the clinics a bit more so that you can have one being cleaned while the other is being um, uh, being treated, being used. Um, I also looked at a, uh, one of these devices that pumps clean air in. You put it over your head. They're quite expensive. And I don't know how it'll be like injecting with a massive helmet on it. Might make it difficult to build rapport. Yeah. I thought maybe consultation first. But I just don't, I don't see how you can... I don't see how you can treat someone's lips, for example. It's... it's yeah, it, it's, you're just so close to the, to the issue, but it's... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 we're in the idea stage still, and uh, and and actually, I have a um, a manager who will do most of that for me. They're, they're kind of working on it in the background, and I'm just kind of throwing in ideas, maybe bad ideas at times. But um. <laughs> I'm joking aside. I was just in my clinic uh, today, just sort of trialing things, and even just wearing goggles, you think, okay, that's sensible. I'm going to wear some goggles and a mask, and yet the practicalities are: you breathe, and they fog up immediately. So then it becomes a question of, oh, do I try different goggles or do I get a visor or, you know, do I wear nothing? Do I just wear normal spectacles like you've got on? They'll, they'll add some safety. So I think until you try these things in practice, it all sounds great. And then you're like, oh, shit, I can't even see. So, yeah, it's a real pain. I, I don't know. I'm just hoping they're going to get antibody testing rolled out and find out we've all already had it. That's my... <laughs> Probably well, not. I can tell you from personal experience that the antibody tests 
don't well there's so many brands now that's the problem and you know lots of countries bought millions of them and then ended up sending them back because the efficacy was so poor so hopefully they get those right because they'll be really helpful and you know even in an aesthetic clinic is that the thing to do at the door a temperature and an antibody test and if that's negative great you can come on in and then maybe not relax your ppe but you can sort of hang your hat on a good test yeah absolutely but it's an interesting idea oh well, this is what people are the conspiracy theorists don't like is you'll end up with a with a special id document that tells you if you've if you've had COVID or not and somehow that'll be bad for you um but that would make the system work pretty well if you could tell who'd who was resistant that'd be really helpful definitely okay well we're going to leave it on that happy note but thanks tim again i really appreciate your time we've spent a lot of time trying to get this going <laughs> and we've got there in the end okay it's been a pleasure thank you very much for thanks inviting. tim thank you so much all right, good yeah. luck with your podcast as well. We'll have to do a, a cross-podcast at some point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That'd be cool. Right, Take care. See, See you later. Buddy. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.